0: John Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast that seeks to recover authentic Christianity and live it out today. Have you heard of Oneness Theology? Also called Jesus Only, this is the idea that Jesus is all there is. Jesus is the Father, Jesus is the Spirit. Jesus has manifested himself in many ways over the years, but there is only one individual or self who is God. Although not exclusive to the Pentecostal movement, most oneness believers belong to charismatic or apostolic groups today. Our episode today is a classic message given by Pastor J. Dan Gill of Tennessee in the early 2000s. I remember sitting there in the audience listening to him share about his journey of faith and thinking to myself, Wow, he's my people. Whether you currently hold oneness theology or not, take a listen to Brother Gill's testimony and see what you think.
1: We are all learning, aren't we? Amen. <laughs> yeah, this is a. Uh, it is a balance that we hold. Not always easy to hold, but a very important balance. A balance of saying, hey, I love truth and I love the truth I have. And at the same time, uh, being able to say on the other side, oh, by the way, I- I'm interested in more truth. Or if I should learn that uh, perhaps I'm not accurate about something, then I want to change. If that's the balance that I think we have to uh, to hold, isn't it? And uh, it's not always easy to do because I either want to come down on the side of saying, I have truth, I am now comfortable, leave me alone, and, uh, and then there's that. Or else, if I don't have that and I come over here and I want to pursue truth, then it's easy to begin to say, I'm not sure there is such a thing as truth and I don't know what we're doing here and I don't know and I can't say. You know, we, we don't want to fall into either one of those traps, do we? So it's uh, an amazing thing. What I would like to do uh, today is to uh, share with you uh, somewhat about my journey in faith and my efforts to keep that balance, and uh, and in the process of uh, these things, perhaps share with you uh, some of the beliefs that I once held, and perhaps uh, help you to understand those things better if you're not familiar with them, and then also uh, to be able to s- contrast that and speak of some of the things that uh, I hold so dear today. And, uh, and hopefully also, uh, as I do that, I'll be able to, you'll be able to sense a bit of the genesis of our fellowship uh, in White House. So, so let's begin. I was reminiscing uh, recently about the mid-1970s. As a young man, uh, I had not been married long. I had a beautiful wife and uh, two very young daughters. I particularly remember the sense of confidence that I felt in those years. It it seemed like that life was well and uh, that the world was before me. I recall mine and Sharon's dedication to our church in Nashville. Each Sunday morning, we would make our way to our usual seat, uh, two pews from the front and to the far left. It was an inconspicuous location, I think. yet one close enough to be assured of not missing anything. I still recall the building at times seemingly transformed as the sunlight would beam through the stained glass windows. Easily, my favorite part of the meeting was the teaching. I had written notes in my wide margin, King James Version Bible, to the point that some passages were getting difficult to read. Yet, I added to those notes each passing Sunday. Sharon and I were a young couple confidently devoted to our faith. Both of us were children and grandchildren of wonderful oneness people, people who had suffered various humiliations in their lives for the belief that God is one, a humiliation meted out by those equally dedicated to the thought that God is not one. Our oneness heritage was something for which we were and still are very proud, thankful. In those days, we never would have thought that God had another plan for us. Can you imagine sitting in church, being taught by capable oneness teachers, and as they teach, finding yourself discovering an entirely different understanding of God? I don't think, don't think that's what my teachers intended to happen, and yet it did. Sitting in those wonderful Sunday morning meetings, as the scriptures were read and as my teachers would teach, I found my understanding of God and Jesus Christ being completely transformed from oneness to one, Sunday by Sunday, week after week. But what is oneness? In oneness is found the belief that only one is God. And that is a laudable conviction. Oneness presents us with the understanding that the Spirit of God is not a separate person in its own right. Uh, Matthew 118 tells us that it is the Spirit of God that caused Jesus to be conceived, begotten. Hence, the Spirit of God and the Father are one and the same. That is a thought that is certainly in the right direction. However, in oneness theology, Jesus is God. More specifically, he is thought to be all of God there is. Jesus is the Father. Jesus is the Holy Spirit. Jesus is the Son. For this reason, uh, oneness theology is sometimes referred to as the Jesus-only teachings. While oneness concepts may seem confusing to the balance of the Christian world, my teachers would have been quick to point out that their perspectives are drawn from the Scriptures. For example, Jesus states in John 14 and 9, Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Thus, to the oneness believer... Jesus is one for one the Father. Again, when Jesus says of the Holy Spirit in John 14 and verse 18, I will not leave you orphans, I will come to you. This means from the oneness point of view that Jesus is one for one the Holy Spirit. Certainly, it is abundantly clear in the scriptures that Jesus is the Son. So then Jesus is God in every respect. Likewise, Jesus says in John five forty three, I have come in my Father's name. And he says in John 14 and 26 that the Father will send the comforter, the counselor, in his name. Hence, in oneness theology, the Father's name and the name of the Holy Spirit is one and the same as the name of Jesus. In oneness, as with the Trinitarian view, Jesus on earth is a God-man. Unlike the Trinitarian view, however, the Son of God is the flesh part, and I'm using oneness language, or human part of that combination. The Son of God and the Son of Man are one and the same, Luke one thirty-five. In the Trinitarian view, the Son of God is the God part of the God-man combination, and the Son of Man is the humanity. Thus... Unlike the Trinitarian view, for oneness, the God part of Jesus is not a God the Son, but rather the Father himself, John 14 and 10, the Father that dwells in me. In the New Testament, Jesus speaks and acts at various times as the man and at other times as God the Father. So, the overarching principle of oneness faith is that Jesus is God, and he alone. Hence, even as a very young man, I knew amazing syllogisms and scriptures from every quarter of the Bible which I thought to conclusively demonstrate that Jesus is God. As a young man of oneness faith, there was no personal incentive to change my views about God. Quite to the contrary. It is often thought in oneness circles that the single most egregious of sins is to deny the crucial tenet that Jesus is the all encompassing deity of the universe. This, perhaps, is the sin for which one will never be forgiven. It is against this backdrop of fear that I found myself sitting in my own church, happily minding my own business, hearing exceptional oneness teachers but then finding myself questioning my oneness faith. I knew that the Trinity was simply an untenable idea. I think it's what results from the clashing together of two very opposing and inharmonious thoughts. Those thoughts are that there is only one God and that there are multiple beings who are God. The mental and verbal contortions necessary to make these two opposing concepts work together are foreboding. Conceived in confusion and codified through coercion, the Trinity is still unintelligible and is still best defended by intimidation. Surely, whatever the truth is, it's better than that. Yet in my world in the 1970s, I only knew of two choices. Either you believed in the Trinity or in oneness. I knew little about Arianism and had never heard of biblical Unitarianism. Yet, week by week, I found myself drawn to a realization that while the Trinity was clearly an unfortunate construct and certainly not scriptural, that our oneness views were also somehow wrong. All errors are easy to see through and dismiss, except those we may be in at the time. I certainly did not want to be wrong in these critical matters. Yet I reasoned, what if I'm already wrong? Maintaining our spiritual status quo may be psychologically comforting. However, we must come to draw our comfort from something better. We must draw our comfort from our valuing of the truth itself, whatever it may be, and above all else. So I did what I have learned to do through my life when faced with that which seems impossible to me. I prayed and began to seek God in these matters. I recall walking at night and telling God that I wanted to know the truth. Above all, I wanted to know him as he is. So I continued to sit in those Sunday morning meetings, but only the more perceived a compelling new understanding of Scripture. Among other things, I began to realize that for Christ to be in the image of God did not make him God. It meant he was not God. The image of a thing is not the actual thing itself. It is a representation. Again, I discovered that David, too, had said in First 1 Samuel 17.45 that he came in the name of the Lord. Did that mean that God's name was David? And I discovered (laughs) that the fourth man in the fire really wasn't Jesus Christ after all. (laughs) It was becoming a wonderful, exhilarating time for me. The tide of truth, once begun in the heart of a man, is not easily stopped. I think that I can rightfully say that I did not so much find truth as truth found me. And in the process, I found God when I really had not been seeking for him. Yet, no one knew of the things that I was thinking about, not even my dear, dedicated, devout, oneness wife. So it was against the same backdrop of fear that I mentioned earlier that I sat in our kitchen one afternoon and suggested to Sharon, perhaps we could be wrong. As I recall, she said, about what? I said, perhaps we could be wrong about Jesus being gone. It was at that point in my life that I learned what a wonderful woman of faith that I had married. To her credit, she neither readily embraced the things that I said to her about these matters, nor did she dismiss them out of hand. Sharon genuinely felt that if somehow we had been wrong, that Jesus is not gone. She wanted to know the truth. We decided to begin reading through the New Testament together and to let the Scripture speak to us as they would. I recall we both worked in downtown Nashville at the time. Each day I would drive us to and from work while Sharon would read successive chapters of the New Testament for us. It was a reading that over the months illuminated us both. We had truly launched a journey of faith from oneness to the one God of the Bible. So what was it that I had been learning during our oneness Sunday morning meetings? What was it that was so compelling that it led me from oneness and charged me to embrace the one God that I celebrate here today? I was discovering some very fundamental systemic problems with our view that Jesus is God. In that view, I didn't have a clear understanding of the one who alone really is God. And, interestingly enough, my oneness views had also caused someone else to be lost to my faith. That someone was the real man, Jesus, Messiah. During those years, I began to realize that Trinitarianism and oneness share in common some most grievous reasoning. I came to understand that it is not possible to proclaim that Jesus is God or that God is Jesus without effectively losing much about both of them. It is an ironic tragedy of theology and faith that the determination to make Jesus a super being, a God man, ultimately demeans him. The oneness view takes a similar perspective as other superbeing theologies and in the process declares the man, Jesus, to be the flesh part or simply a robe of flesh which God took upon himself. This corresponds to the unfortunate view of an impersonal human nature. It is not we here today who devalue Jesus Christ by recognizing him for who and what he really is, the true human son of God. It is the super-being theologies that devastate the man Christ Jesus by making him less than those he saves. He is portrayed as less than a true human being. The awkward augmentation in the non-scriptural phrase, fully man, highlights a telling weakness in God-man theology. Those in the Bible who genuinely believed that he was a man found it quite sufficient to simply say, Jesus Christ, a man. And hey, can you imagine the angel saying to Mary, and you shall conceive in your womb and bring forth an impersonal human nature, or you'll bring forth a robe of flesh for God to wear I began to realize that in these theologies, Jesus loses the honor that is rightly his. That is the honor that he should receive as a true human being for trusting and obeying God and setting this matter of our disobedience aright. Jesus deserves all the credit for undoing for us what Adam did against us. In oneness theology, the degradation of the Son of God begins with his being theologically reduced to a body of flesh. But this depravity finds its ultimate sting in the thought that in the end, the Son becomes the no longer needed flesh part that will be done away with. Imagine that the one who died so that we could have unending life will himself not enjoy unending life. He, being no longer needed, will be dispatched into non-existence. And yet, the theology, theological tragedy goes on. In superbeing theology such as oneness and Trinitarianism, God loses the glory that is due him. Think of all that he did for and through Christ Jesus for us. It was God who caused him to be conceived. It was God who nurtured Jesus and blessed him so that he might become the Savior for the rest of us. It is God who answered his prayers and empowered him to do all that he did. It is God who raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand. It was God who had the plans for all of these incredible things from before all time. God deserves all the glory for what he has accomplished for us through the man Christ Jesus. Oneness, Trinitarianism, and other super-being ideologies are all theological paradigms that perpetuate this terrible diminishing of the man Christ Jesus, while at the same time robbing his Father of glory. The Father whom Jesus himself describes in John 17 and 3 as the only true God. Unbeknownst to my oneness teachers, these realizations are the kinds of things that were amazing me as I sat in those oneness meetings on Sunday morning so many years ago. God, by his kindness, was changing me forever. Allow me to share with you a key passage that changed my thinking in those days. Interestingly enough, the passage is the second chapter of the book of Acts. I say interestingly because this is a favored passage in oneness theology. Most children from an early age know Acts 2, 1 through 4, which brings to us the mighty and wonderful account of the receiving of the Spirit by the disciples on the day of Pentecost. Likewise, every oneness person can relate to Peter's quoting of the amazing prophecy of Joel and those incredible words in Acts 2:16. This is that. Most children in a oneness household can quote Acts 2.38. Then Peter said to them. "Hmm." However, over time I began to realize something odd about our church's reading of and expositions in the second chapter of Acts. It dawned on me that between Peter's completing of his quotation of Joel in verse 21 and the remarks of the crowd which prompted his landmark directives in verse 38, that for us as oneness people, there was a theological black hole. I have often tried to recall if I ever heard even one sermon text from any of the verses found from Acts 2.22 through Acts 2.36. Somehow, these 15 verses tend to be absent from oneness thought and preaching. It was sitting in church on a number of Sunday mornings that I began to rediscover the 15 missing verses of Acts, the second chapter. Suddenly, those verses had a profound influence on my faith. I found myself reading them over and over again. It also soon became evident to me why, as oneness people, we had not been drawn to that part of Acts 2. The things said in those verses were at the least confusing for the oneness mindset and in actuality devastating to our entire way of thinking about God and Jesus. I also find in these verses the virtual dismantling of other super-being theologies. It's been well said by oneness folks that everyone should read Acts. In fact, there is an old song in oneness circles that says... In Acts, the second chapter, you can read it for yourself. You won't have to ask anybody else. I agree. In fact, I think that the book of Acts is a gift of God for testing our theological ideas. Acts is rather much a laboratory in which we can place our theologies on trial. Here we can set our thoughts alongside the actual in-the-field teachings and activities of the first Christians. What did their message sound like? What did their faith look like in action? Do our theological ideas match what they actually said and did? If not, then perhaps we need to revisit our theologies. That's what I began to do. I laid down my oneness theology besides those 15 Middle Acts verses, (laughs) Middle Acts 2 verses, and found that it failed the test of the laboratory of Acts. Let me highlight some key lost verses from Middle Acts 2. Put yourself back there uh, and, and imagine yourself in the crowd of Jews hearing these things for the first time that day for a moment. Lost verse number one, Acts 2.22. You that are Israelites, listen to what I have to say. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with deeds of power, wonders, and signs that God did through him among you as you yourselves know. This verse brings us to two amazing statements, neither of which were congruent with my oneness teachings. First, Jesus is announced to be a man. This is hardly the declaration that I, as a oneness person, would have anticipated to be made to those Jews gathered from every nation under heaven. It seems inescapable to me that the proclamation would needed to have been listen, O house of Israel, Jesus was your God. Come down to you in human flesh. Or at the very least, he was the God man. The announcement, Jesus, a man approved by God, is both accurate and sufficient. It is those words which launched Peter's proclamation on that day. The second incongruence was by miracles and wonders and signs which God did by him. My oneness faith directed me to believe that Jesus had to be God because of the miracles and wonders that he did. Again, if Peter was oneness, wouldn't I expect him to declare by miracles and wonders and signs that he did, thus proving himself to be your God? Lost verse number 2, Acts two twenty three. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Again, it is Jesus of Nazareth, a man, handed over to them that they had put to death. There is no message this day about you put your God to death. There is no message this day about crucifying the man part of Jesus. Jesus. It is a man from Nazareth that they had killed. That is what the crowd heard. It is exactly what Peter meant for them to hear. Lost verse number 3, Acts 2 and verse 24. But God raised him up, having freedom from death, because it was impossible for him to be held in its power. This verse was particularly difficult for my oneness mindset. As a oneness person, I was straightly to believe that Jesus raised himself from the dead. And why not? Any of the super-being theologies would logically draw us to that conclusion. The most powerful statement that Peter could make would surely be that Jesus raised himself from the dead, thus proving himself to be God, if that's what Peter believed. But twice in this chapter alone, Peter affirms that God raised Jesus, the man from Nazareth, from the dead. Lost verses, numbers 4 and 5. Acts 2, 34 and 35. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, Yahweh says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. To my oneness faith, when one spoke the word Lord, it was in itself a reference reference to deity or God. So here was an insurmountable difficulty because Yahweh is speaking to another who is Lord. And by Peter's proclamation, this Lord is clearly the man, Jesus. Of course, Peter is quoting from Psalm 110 and 1. As we so well learned, this passage from the Old Testament is the single most quoted or referenced in the New Testament. Yet this flagship passage of our brothers in New Testament times was all but hidden from my oneness faith. And isn't this wonderful? Peter is not telling a story of God coming to earth that day. There is no coming down of their God in Acts 2 to become a God-man. There is, however, someone taken up. There is no story of a God who voluntarily debases himself and comes to earth. There is the story of a man who, by God, has been exalted to the right hand of God in heaven. Neither is there a story of God coming to earth at all, or any super being coming to earth at all to purchase our salvation none lost verse number six acts 2 36 therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made that same Jesus whom you have crucified both Lord and Christ incredible Jesus is Lord because God has made him Lord He is the Christ because God has made him to be the Christ. This brings us to what for me became an insurmountable problem for oneness theology. And one that is equally insurmountable for Trinitarian and other super being views of Jesus Christ. If Lord is a reference to deity in Psalm 110 and 1, as some have alleged, then Peter has now declared that God has made Jesus to be deity. Surely here Peter settles once and for all who and what the Lord of Psalm 110 and 1 is. If the Lord refers to deity, then Peter has left us with the unthinkable. God has made someone else to be a deity or deity. Unquestionably. Lord is a reference to an exalted human being, and Peter is telling us that that human being is the man, Jesus, from Nazareth. Indeed, God has made Jesus to be the Christ. God has no need to be anointed by anyone. It is he who anoints Jesus. Jesus is Lord and Messiah only because God has made him to be these things. Hence our popular refrain: "You can help me with this. This just hit me." Right, but we do this in Nashville, so they will be so pleased to hear that you've done this. But, but you must do it with gusto. Now, there, this is a refrain with a response. Now, this isn't hard. Your part is just: I will, I will ask you a question, and the answer will be no. Practice that. No, no. Thank you. See, after lunch we have to do, do something. You're right. Okay. No, and then I'll ask you a second question, and the answer will be no. Okay, and then I'm going to ask you a third question. This is going to seem odd until I ask the question. But the question is, the answer is, <laughs> the answer this time is dead. Okay, so you got it? No, no, dead. Okay, all right. So here we go. We do this in the higher ground. It's, it's wonderful. We just have fun at this. Okay. If God had not made Jesus to be Lord, would he be Lord? No. If God had not made Jesus to be Christ, would he be the Christ? No. If God had not raised Jesus from the dead, where would he be? Dead. You do that very well. They will be very proud of you. Thank you. Lost verse number 7. Acts 2.38. Now when they heard this, They were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what should we do? Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, so that your sins may be forgiven, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Our cardinal oneness verse, verse of verses, Acts 2.38. Why would I categorize this verse as one of those lost to oneness? because if we fail to grasp the underpinnings of the faith that proceeds from Peter's declarations in the preceding 15 verses, if we divorce verse 38 from its context, then this verse is also now lost. How shall we rightly preach or obey from the heart words we don't truly understand? Let's take a look at what Peter was really saying in this landmark verse in light of what we now know formed the basis for his directions in Acts 2.38. Peter directs people that day to two things and he gives the order in which they are to do them. First, repent, metaniah. A compound word meaning quite literally to change your mind, have a different mind. Meta and, and the nous, yeah. okay. Peter is telling people that day to change their minds regarding Jesus of Nazareth. We tend to associate repentance with leaving off sins of the flesh or the works of the flesh. But this is true, of course. But think about the people that were, were gathered that day. These were thousands of Jews who had sojourned there. These were devout people, uh, Luke tells us. They were not so much a a, a problem for Peter's looking at them and say, Oh, we've got to get these people to leave off their witchcraft and their works of the flesh. No. What was it that they were to change their minds regarding this whole matter of Jesus being the Messiah and the coming kingdom of God? They are to believe everything that Peter has said regarding him. Thus, full repentance was to embrace Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved by God. And that God did miracles, wonders, and signs through that man. And that they had been complicit in this man's death. Not the death of a body or of a human nature, but a human being. God raised him from the dead. And God has glorified this man from Nazareth and has set him in his own right hand. That's amazing and that's wonderful. And this same Jesus, God has made him Lord. God has made him Messiah. This is true, full repentance. Is not this exactly the same repentance that we should be proclaiming today? Hmm. Upon that message, we can bring forth that repentance. Then and only then are we ready to approach the second of Peter's two commands and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of this same man, the anointed Jesus. In this baptism, we as men now fully and wholly identify ourselves with this man who died for us. This man we now embrace as Lord and Messiah. And notice Peter's emphatic every one of you the command to be baptized carries the same exact weight as the command to repent everyone who fully repents regarding Jesus is to be baptized in his name notice it is the one you rejected and hanged on a tree now you will be immersed in his name and indeed it is the name of Jesus the Christ not Jesus your God not Jesus the God man Rather, Jesus, the man whom God has anointed. This immersion was the pivotal moment for the receiving of that message that day. It is synonymous with the acceptance of this man himself. It was the people's declaring back their faith in all that they had heard. Repentance is something that we as people can do. Receiving baptism is something that we can do. These are directives from Peter. They are imperatives. And then you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. About 3,000 people became disciples of Jesus Christ that day. Thousands of names were added to the Lamb's Book of Life. But as I would read the words of Acts during those Sunday morning meetings years ago, it became inescapable to me that those 3,000 people knew nothing of my oneness view of God and Jesus it became equally inescapable to me that Peter was not a oneness preacher. No oneness preacher I had ever heard would have proclaimed that message as Peter did that day. It is also equally clear that Peter was not any of the super-being theologies. By the test of the book of Acts he was not a Trinitarian, nor a Binitarian, nor an Arian. Neither were the other apostles. Remember They, too, were present and obviously assenting to Peter's words. 3,000 people became disciples of Jesus Christ that day by believing exactly what I'm preaching today about God and Jesus Christ. I'm not very original. I have to confess, I just took it straight from Peter. If by this message and these commands, 3,000 people were saved, to use our evangelical language, why would not that same message bring forth the same results today? And how shall I or any other man ever say again that one must believe the oneness or the Trinity or any god man to be saved? 3,000 souls were added to the Lord's people based on the hearing and obeying of exactly what we as one God people are saying about Jesus and God. No other theology fits that occasion that I can see. The theology that I now proclaim fits it exactly. And if Peter was here today, I can hear him saying exactly the same things that he was saying in Acts 2.22 through verse 36. And I can hear him saying to us on the basis of those words that we should change our minds and be baptized, every one of us, in the name of the anointed Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. And how great is this repentance? How great is this baptism? They are the basis upon which they would anticipate receiving the Holy Spirit. Thank you for your attention today.
0: Well, that brings this message to a close. What did you think? Come on over to org and find episode 457 From Oneness to One with J. Dan Gill and leave your questions and feedback there. Also, if you'd like to know more about Brother Gill and his wife, I did an interview with them that you can find if you just search in the podcast feed. It's interview number 22. And if you're curious about another testimony about a oneness person, you can check out the episode with Joel Hemphill called My Story, His Glory, also on this podcast. If you want more resources by Dan Gill and his team, check out the 21st Century Reformation website. That's 21stcr.org. It's 21st with a number, and then CR for Century Reformation. This is a website that I have contributed to a lot, and uh, that I highly recommend. It's uh, very much a video focus as opposed to audio, which Rest Studio is much more audio focused, although we do have a YouTube channel with some unedited interviews on it, so uh, check that out if you haven't yet. And last of all, if you haven't yet signed up, why not register for the Unitarian Christian Alliance, which is coming up this October 13th through the 15th. You even may get a chance to meet Dan and Sharon Gill At this event, if they uh, come, they came last year and hopefully they'll come again this year. And uh, I'll be there and a a number of other speakers. We've got a great lineup for you for this year. I don't think that is yet public, but there are going to be quite a few scholarly presentations as well as more practical style workshops at the same time so that you can choose your own adventure. And so uh, if you are able to make it, it's held in Springfield Ohio, October 13th to the 15th. Considering the insane cost of everything in our world today, we thought that uh, for this year, and uh, probably just this year, we would not raise our price over last year. So we're offering the conference at the same price as last year, and I I honestly don't remember what that is off the top of my head, but you can find out that information at UnitarianChristianAlliance.org and find the the post that mentions registration, and uh, come over there and register. So hopefully you can make it to that. I uh, would love to see you there. Also, uh, up in New York, if you would like to visit uh, my own home church, Living Hope Community Church, we'd love to have you. We've got a big weekend planned September 23rd to the 25th, and our, our event is called Kingdom Fest. It's a little... It's kind of like halfway between a, a conference and a festival. We do, uh, we do rent out a huge tent and put it over one of our parking lots, and we have food out there. We have a full, very good children's program. If you have any kids, you can bring them. If not, that's fine, too. Uh, a lot of singles, a lot of married people, a lot of kids come to this event. Our theme is Joyful in the Lord. We're going to hear a number of teachings from, from my father, Vince Finnegan, from Victor Gluckin from uh, a number of other voices you've probably heard on Resitudio over the years. And we're also hoping to bring in a couple of guest speakers, that's not yet confirmed, but uh, did want to mention it to you if you would like to come up and visit and mingle and hang out and we also have sports available Saturday afternoon if you're interested in that. Just a great time to spend with the family of God, Uh, great worship music, Lots of free time for building relationships. September is really a nice time to be in New York. It's, uh, it's it's kind of it's it's more of a fall feel, but it's not it's not cold yet, at least not by our standards. And uh, so it'd be great to see any of you who come. The registration right now is open at ninety-five dollars per person. Uh, housing is on your own, but that includes all of your meals uh, for the time there. Starting with a with a nice potluck dinner on Friday night and going through Saturday and into Sunday, uh, concluding with lunch on Sunday. So uh, we'd love to see you if you could make it to Kingdom Fest 2022. And uh, I hope that this event, if you come, will make you joyful in the Lord. That's the goal for it. And so for more information about that, come on over to LHIM.org. That stands for Living Hope International Ministries, LHIM.org and uh, you can find the registration information there. Well, that's it for today. Thanks for listening to the end here. Uh, I was a little delayed this week in getting this episode out because uh, I was on vacation. I was recovering and uh, feel pretty good now. And appreciate your patience in having this episode come out a few days late. Uh, hopefully, we'll get back on schedule uh, either this week or next week and uh, get right back to posting by Friday. Thanks everyone for listening. We'll see you next week. If you'd like to support this ministry, you can do that at restitudio.org. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.